Hi, I'm Pastor Corey, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope this sermon can guide you along that path. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. As we were ordering worship for today, I asked that we do that before the sermon because I figured I'd be more nervous about singing (laughs) than I would be about preaching. But I give thanks for the opportunity to be a part of that with Rick and Derek. I am Adam Seat. I'm the lead pastor here at Orange, and I welcome you to this time of worship that we share together today. Thank you for uh, joining us as we are, as Pastor Corey said, we are continuing our worship series called Living Church, where we're looking at what it means for us to live church together. And as today is about radical hospitality, I want to once again reemphasize about the Trunk or Treat event that has taken place this afternoon. If you are sitting there wondering, I want to come, but I don't know how I would decorate the trunk. Well, let me reassure you. I have set the bar so low that you don't have to worry about a thing. Here's here's my trunk decoration idea. I'm going to open the trunk and have a bowl of candy. I mean, the bar is set so low. There's nothing else that you have to worry about. So please feel comfortable to just come and be a part of that fellowship together today. Let's go to God for this word of prayer. Oh, God of grace and God of mercy, we give thanks for the opportunity to come together today, whether virtually or those that have gathered in person. We thank you for the way that you've ordered life in such a way that we're able to take the busyness and chaos of life and just press pause to find this time of rest, this time of renewal and restoration. So, Lord, breathe upon us. Fill us with your holy presence once again. And now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you transform the words that proceed from my mouth, and as they fall upon our ears and penetrate our hearts, may they be changed into the word of God that we need to hear today, as individuals and collectively as one body. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. We're certainly in interesting times. Things are not the way that they used to be. It used to be that as we lived in this culture, there was great trust that was given to religious institutions. Religion, and specifically Christianity here in America, was such a vital part of our identity. And when you met somebody, it would not be out of the ordinary for you simply to ask someone as you're new to town, where do you go to church? Because the assumption was that on Sunday morning, everyone went to church. Everyone went. I mean, I remember back in the day, I'm old enough to remember Blue Laws. Anybody remember Blue Laws? Yeah, I remember back in the 80s in Wilmington, North Carolina, where my father was serving as a pastor of a church there. I remember there was one establishment that wanted to be open on Sundays. But because of the Blue Laws of the community, 
They were not allowed to. So there was all this news and publicity about this one establishment that wanted to be open on Sundays. I remember how everything used to be closed on those days. I mean, we're just in a different day and time now. Things are different, and particularly if you think about after the pandemic. Church is not what it used to be. I mean, I remember, I, I want to see if we can pull up this picture. I remember when I was a kid, there used to be perfect attendance pins. Does anybody remember anything like that? Yeah, it would be a perfect attendance pin. And if you had attended worship or Sunday school every Sunday, you might be allowed a couple of absences. But if you had attended Sunday school every Sunday for an entire year, you would first get that first anchor pin. And then, as the years went on, you would be able to get additional pins. In fact, I found it fascinating. I went on to Cokesbury.com. Cokesbury is a part of the United Methodist Church. It's the way they distribute a lot of our published books and things like that. And you could go on to Cokesbury, and you could order one of those pins right now for this year, which is fascinating. Because things are not the way they used to be. I mean, you could spend, is it 1639 to get that first year of perfect attendance? Or if you've been even more than one year, you can order the next part. You can order those numbers. Now, I remember if you could read the fine print down there, it says for years 31 and above, you have to call in special order. I mean, 31 years and above of perfect attendance. And I remember as a child, we'd have that Sunday school assembly and we'd go up there and you'd get another link to put onto your perfect attendance pin. And I mean, when we went on vacation, we even made sure that we went to church so that we could come back with the bulletin to show as proof that we had gone to be able to keep our perfect attendance record going. Things are different Things are different now. And in fact, just a few years ago, and, and some churches may still do this, but it was not that uncommon that if you were to miss church for one or even two Sundays, you might receive a postcard in the mail that said something along the lines of this, what's missing the CH and CH? You are. <laughs> if you missed a couple of Sundays, you might have gotten a postcard like this. And look, People get offended sometimes when they get a postcard like that. They get a, po they get a postcard that says you've been missed. And even though it's a thoughtful and caring intention behind sending it, sometimes people think, well, who are you to point out that I hadn't been in church a couple of weeks? I mean, sometimes the church is weird. We can be so unfriendly and unwelcoming sometimes that we have these expectations and then we then we put on one another or other people. In fact, this week, I found a, a church in Wisconsin, a United Methodist church that just a few years ago had established what minimum guidelines, minimum requirements were to be considered an active member of that church. And they created these rules and they set out these expectations. For example, for weekly attendance and worship, the expectation was... You are going to be weekly in attendance of worship. But the bare minimum requirement to be an active member of this church, it says at least six times per year. So once every other month, that was the bare minimum. And if you did not reach that bare minimum requirement, you were taken off the active member role. The minister, you had to meet with the minister who would come and to find out why you could not be there those six times to be an active member. I mean, that sounds strange to me. It continues on for financial support. 
the expectation is that you would support the church with a tithe, 10% of your giving. But the minimum requirement, get this, they had a minimum requirement for church members to give to the church, to financially support. The minimum requirement, $4 a week. That's the minimum requirement. This was just in the 1990s, and then it was reapproved in 20, 2008. And so it's not that long ago, $4 per week, which breaks down to $208 for the year. And of that $208, they even break it up and they say that $100 of that is for conference apportionments and $108 goes to the general operating fund. I mean, and if you didn't meet that minimum requirement, you were no longer considered an active member. The minister would come and meet with you. Now, the minister could waive that requirement of $4 a Sunday. I mean, uh, it just seems so strange that they established these minimum requirements. And then there was one more thing that I do want to highlight. It says that participation in the life of the church, that it was expected that people would serve on committees and be a part of other things outside of the context of worship. But the minimum requirement for being an active member at this particular United Methodist Church was participation in one of our church activities beyond attending worship. Just one, whether it's Sunday school or attending something like Trunk or Treat, just one event in the calendar year. And if you did not do something other than just attending worship, the minister would meet with you and you would be taken off the active member role. Friends, I'll be seeing a few. No, I'm kidding. We don't do that necessarily because it's just strange. Churches, we, we react and act towards one another in such strange ways. And we put expectations on people. I mean, I tried to do something like that in 2000, no, in 1997. I was in my very first church. And it was a small rural congregation. I was in my second year of divinity school at Duke. And I thought I knew it all. Uh, they brought in this young whippersnapper. The minister that retired from that church before I went, he was 94. I was 25. There's a big difference if you didn't know that already. And so I come in at 25 years old, and I think I know everything. I'm ready to take on the challenge of this church that was struggling financially. And I come in, and I came up with this whole formula. It, it was ridiculous in many ways. I came up with this formula. I considered what the, the, the standard of poverty level was in 1997 for that community. For a family of four, it was $16,050. And so I, I broke it all down for the church. I said, if let's just assume that that's what your income is, and let's divide that number. By, let's, let's do 10% of that, and then divide that number by 52, which would then break down to $30.87 a week. And I said that if all the church would just assume they were receiving poverty level and would give at that 10% of that poverty level, that that would cover all of our budget. I thought I knew what I was doing. Oh, man, they got so upset. <laughs> I that, where was grace in that? The grace was that they let me come back the next week. They helped shape and form me and helped me learn there are better ways to communicate your message than shaming them. That's really what I was trying to do, I think. Trying to shame them into giving. You know, in the church, we, we act towards one another so many times in, in different ways in ways that are unwelcoming and not friendly and not receiving. And the thing is, it's having an impact. Trends are showing that sometime around in the 1990s, 
church began to change. People began to leave being an active part of any worshiping community and then leaving the faith altogether. In fact, there, I know you won't be able to see this graphic on this incomplete, but I read about this graphic that in, according to a study that was done by the Pew Research Group, there are scenarios that by the year 2070, there will be more people professing no religion than there will be Christians. Just a few short years. You may see 2070. I doubt I will. But by that time, there will be more people that identify as nuns, not from a convent, nuns being no faith, none religion, may outnumber those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. This change it's happening all around us, and sometimes I can't help but think it's because the way that we within the church interact with one another. We have lost sight of what we're called to be as we interact and relate with one another. This causes great lament for me. I mean, church isn't what it used to be. It, it hurts, and the pandemic certainly did not do us any favors. And the thing is, none of us took a class on how to lead into this era. None of us took a class on how to lead through a time of pandemic. None of us took a class on how to lead a church and that's part of a denomination that's in the midst of a great split. There is so much to lament. But yet, there is still hope. Because we recognize every time that we face adversity, every time we face difficult situations, there is potential for new life and new growth. Bishop Robert Schneese wrote a book called The Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations. He learned through his practice of ministry over the years and leading a whole conference, he learned five practices that were in churches that were fully alive, coming forth and growing, that they were for, had five different practices that they themselves practiced. And so we're looking at those five practices. Last Sunday, Josh, our Pathways worship leader, led us in the first of those five practices as he spoke to us about passionate worship. You know, we're reminded of how we're to put all of our being into worship. And look, sometimes I've been to worship services that feel more like a funeral than a worship service where we're giving glory and honor to God, where we're telling God how much he's worth. Just this Monday evening, my wife Jennifer and I were able to come over here to be a part of Reality Ministries that is gathering here at Orange. And I give so much thanks for that ministry and that opportunity for all people to find their place in God's story. And in that, we had a chance to sing a couple of songs. And you saw and experienced what it's like to put all of your being into worship. I'm reminded of that when I see a child. You know, children will sing, they'll dance, they'll move. But as they get a little bit older, we begin to repress that. Oh, let that be a model for us. When we offer God all of our being, that our worship would exude that joy as a child or that which we witness through reality. The remaining practices of that book, five practices that we're living into with Living Church, is radical hospitality. We're talking about that today. Next week, we're going to talk about intentional faith development. The following week, we're going to talk about risk-taking mission and service. And the final week, we'll talk about extravagant generosity. But today, as we're talking about radical hospitality, what does that look like? And how have you experienced radical hospitality? 
Now, before we get into radical hospitality, let's simply talk about hospitality. Every church thinks of themselves as a friendly, welcoming church. Every church, I know, thinks of themselves as a big old family, as a welcome place for anyone and everyone. But that, to be honest, is not always the case. I remember a few years ago, my family and I, we had gone on vacation, and we were out around Virginia Beach, and you know what? I took church clothes, because I was going to go to church on that Sunday. I found a Methodist church. I found out. I looked online, and I found that the Methodist minister there had gone to the same seminary that I had, and I was looking forward to going and introducing myself. I mean, I was proud. I'm on vacation, and look at how faithful I am. I'm such a good Christian person on vacation. And so I was so proud, and I couldn't wait. I figured, you know what? They may even call on me to say a word or two. I mean... You know, I mean, it can't be every day that you've got somebody on vacation that just shows up that happens to be a Methodist minister. So I was just, I don't know, I just thought, you know, I was excited to go to church. And so I got myself ready and I went off to church and walked in the door. And, you know, I had that experience that a lot of times you have when you walk into a place where you don't know anybody and they don't know you. And I mean, they don't know me from Adam and I am Adam. And so they're looking at me and they, they do the head nod. And so I do the head nod back and... Somebody might say, hey, how are you? And before I could respond to how I was, you know, they were off to the next person. And so very superficial conversations. But I had looked in the bulletin, and I saw that there was a time called passing of the peace. Y'all know what the passing of the peace is, right? It's when you turn to your neighbor and you say, the peace of Christ be with you and also with you. And so I was like, oh, that's going to be the time that they really warm up to me. And sure enough, we get to that point in the service and they say, because I'm an extrovert, I get energy off of interaction with other people. Um, Sometimes introverts hate that part of the service, I understand. But as an extrovert, oh, I love that part. And so the pastor says, and now I want you to turn to your neighbors and greet them with the peace of Christ. And I turn and people, peace of Christ, peace of Christ, peace of Christ. And that was it. Nobody asked me my name. Nobody asked me, oh, are you a United Methodist minister here on vacation? I mean, I... I just was like, wow, that's it. And I mean, I left. I didn't have a welcome gift. I mean, it it was just not, I didn't feel welcomed. It didn't feel friendly. It didn't feel warm. It didn't feel like what I was hoping for. I mean, you know, I'm drawn back to even when Jennifer and I, after we got married and we started going back to church, we would try to explore around different churches because there was a period of time, folks, I'm one of those people that left the church altogether. I wanted nothing to do with the church, but we felt this calling, this beckoning. And so we explored around the different churches. I remember going into one church and looking around the room and realizing I was the youngest person there, and except for the beautiful bride beside me, but I was the youngest person there. And I said, well, I don't want to be anybody's little boy. So that was my excuse not to go to that church. But we found another church where I had known the pastor from when I was a teenager and I had a good relationship with him. So I was looking forward. We were excited to actually go and to visit this church and attend it. And we went in, we got into the pew. We made sure we were there good and early. And just a few minutes before the service started, you won't believe what happened. An older man came up to the end of the pew And he's standing there at the edge of the pew, and he's shaking his head. I said, well, good morning, sir. He says, he didn't even say good morning back. He said, my family has been coming to this church for over 50 years. I'm like, wow, that's a long time. And we always sit right where you're sitting. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. And I was... 
I was encouraged to find a different place to sit. Realize, I was, I, was on the, I was on the fine line of whether or not I wanted to be a part of a church or not. And that was the welcome I had, that I needed to find a different place to sit. Y'all are going to mess with me next week and just change up where you're sitting, aren't you? John, I bet you're going to be sitting over here next Sunday. That'll just throw me off all completely. <laughs> you know, sometimes in the church, we're not really welcoming. We think we're friendly. We think we're warm. We think we're a family. Sometimes we're not. So I think it's important that, that we consider what it means to be hospitable, that we consider what it means to be welcoming. I mean, Pastor Corey and her family just had an opportunity a while back to go to Disney World. You want to know what hospitality is, go to Disney World. There are signs everywhere directing you exactly where to go. And if you even have a quizzical look upon your face that you're not sure about something, they have helpful cast members who are going to be right there in that moment. They're going to welcome and receive anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter what language you speak. They're going to matter. It doesn't matter what abilities you have or don't have. They are going to do everything they can so that you can have a magical experience. They're going to keep the place clean. They're going to do everything just right. Because... They want you to know it is a small world after all. And you can have that magical experience. They're going to come alongside and make sure, make sure you have the time of your life. Oh, that's hospitality. But that's really just the basics. That's the basics of hospitality. For us to live into what I would call the radical hospitality, as the bishop had written about, I think it goes beyond just those basics. And as we look at this passage of scripture that Pastor Corey relates to, uh, I too am a sinner. Uh, so I think that must have been the part that you related to Zacchaeus about. Um, we have the story of Jesus. Jesus, this is a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And so Jesus' name and notoriety has continued to be building. People are drawn to Jesus. They're drawn to hear his teaching. Even the scribes and the Pharisees say about how he speaks with such authority. They're drawn to his works and wonders. Healings have continued to take place. People pressing in upon Jesus, just wanting to simply touch him and to touch the hem of his garment. And they've been receiving these healings. And so notoriety has surrounded him. And one day Jesus is making his way through Jericho. And the scripture tells us about this man named Zacchaeus. Now, who is Zacchaeus? Well, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And if you sang that, then I bet you probably had one of those perfect attendance Sunday school pens. Because that's where we learned a lot of those songs. We learned those songs. We learned the stories of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, he was the chief tax collector for Jericho. When it says he was the chief, that means that he had tax collectors under him. He was the most powerful tax collector. And I don't know if you would believe it or not, but tax collectors in that day and time did not have a very good reputation. They were known for taking advantage of people, defrauding people, taking extra from people, forcing people into hardship. And Zacchaeus, he was the chief of them all. He was kind of like the mafia boss over all the tax collectors. But Zacchaeus hears about Jesus is coming through Jericho. And Zacchaeus wants to, he wants to know what it's about. He wants to see him. Scripture says he can't see because he's, shall we say, short in stature. And so he can't see over the crowds. So Zacchaeus is not going to let that stop him. 
He climbs up the sycamore tree just because he wanted to see Jesus. And I think it's fascinating as Jesus is walking, Jesus looks up and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree. And he calls out to him, Zacchaeus, how did Jesus know his name? Other than, I mean, he's Jesus. <laughs> He'd never met him before that we would know of. But Jesus sees him and he knows his name and he calls him and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Come down from there. I'm coming to your house today. I'm coming to your house today to dine with you. Now, a lot of times when we think about hospitality, we think about it of us receiving people. Here, Jesus demonstrates this incredible hospitality by saying, I'm coming to be with you. The chief tax collector, the chief tax collector comes down from the tree. They go to his house, and the scraps and the Pharisees see Jesus going in there with them. And what is this? He dines even with sinners? Huh. Zacchaeus. He had to hear it. I don't know what it was that turned within Zacchaeus's heart. Maybe it was that simply Jesus knew him by name. Maybe it was that Jesus wanted to be with him. Maybe, maybe it was that Jesus had already demonstrated this incredible gift of love and acceptance and welcoming to him. But Zacchaeus, his heart turns and he says, Jesus, half of everything I have, I will give to the poor. And for anyone that I've defrauded, and we know it probably had been several, I will repay quadruple. Ah. And Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house today. And it all began because Zacchaeus simply wanted to see Jesus. And Jesus said, you come and be with me. He didn't say, now you go and pay back all that you owe other people before I come to you. He didn't say any of that. He just said, I'm coming to your house today. Right as he was, right in that moment, I'm coming to your house today. That's beautiful. That's this radical transformation. That's this radical hospitality that Jesus demonstrated. That we as a church so many times, and I don't just mean orange, I mean churches in general. So many times we wait for people to have their lives together before we welcome them. We wait for people to have it all turned around before they are accepted and loved. And that's not the hospitality that I see lived out through Jesus Christ. Jesus was willing to welcome and to love and to include and accept all people. I think that's the kind of hospitality that we ourselves are called to live into. As I was growing up in Wilmington at that time, one of my closest friends was named John. John and I would play basketball together. We skateboarded. We loved to go surfing together. And John's father was my basketball coach. And believe it or not, I used to be nothing but skin and bones. I was a skinny rail of a boy. And I was not very gifted at basketball, but I was going to be a, as hard a player as I could possibly be. And so John's dad nicknamed me Spidey because I would get down in my posture for defense. And I'd have those arms stretched out wide and my legs out wide. And he said I looked like a granddaddy long legs when I was out there on the court playing ball. John's dad was such a good man to me, and he would take us on, we'd go on vacation together, and John would go on vacation with my family, and I remember one of my fondest memories of John's dad was him taking us to Cape Hatteras to go surfing at the lighthouse there, the Hatteras Lighthouse, and we were a part of what we called the Dawn Patrol, so we got there before the sun came up. 
And as the sun began to come up on the horizon, we went out into the water, and John's dad stood there patiently, watching and looking over us. Over the years, John and I continued to maintain a strong relationship. And when his father lived in the Outer Banks and we would go on vacation, many times I'd have an opportunity to see his father once again. But I received a call that John's father had passed. And the family was asking that I be able to come and that I might be able to say something at the service. I was humbled. I was humbled at the opportunity that was being given to me to be able to celebrate the life of this man that had an important role in my life as well. And so I was preparing for that when I received word that because the service was being held at a church that was of a different faith tradition than what I was a part of, I was not going to be allowed to speak. I was welcome to come, but I would not be allowed to speak. And so I went. I was disappointed. I was sad that I was not going to be able to speak, but I was willing to go. And they honored his life, even though the person that spoke did not even know the man that had died. And then they celebrated Holy Communion. The bread was broken. The cup was lifted up. And people were invited to come forward, but I myself could not receive because I was not a part of that faith tradition. I could receive a blessing, but I could not receive the gift to the body and blood. I was welcomed, but I didn't feel welcome. That experience, that experience hurt, knowing that I could come, but I couldn't be included. I could come, but I couldn't fully be a part. Friends, I believe that I am so dedicated to being a part of a church that is going to welcome and include all people. That there are no ifs, ands, and buts for anyone that seeks to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That they would have the opportunity, that they would be included, that they would be welcomed, that they would be fully integrated into the life of the church. And there would be nothing that could stop them. That is what I view as radical hospitality. I think that's our mission. That anytime anybody walks through that door for the very first time, that they would know that they were in the presence of Jesus Christ, one who loves them, who looks upon them just in the same way that Jesus looked upon Zacchaeus and said, I'm coming to be with you. I'm with you today. I think that's what we're called to do. And for us to be able to demonstrate such radical hospitality, I think it leads us to three questions that are very important for us to be able to readily answer. That first question Why do people need Jesus? Why do people need Jesus? I believe, obviously, we need Jesus because Jesus offered a sacrifice for us to pay a price that we ourselves could never pay. But beyond that also, I believe people need Jesus because Jesus modeled for us and he exemplified for us what love and acceptance of others was. He modeled for us what forgiveness is. He modeled for us how to be in relationship with one another. I think it's so essential for us to be fully in relationship with God. It has to be through Jesus. So I think it's important. It's so important that people know Jesus. We've got to be able to first answer that question. Why do people need Jesus? The next question for us to really lead into radical hospitality, I believe that is important. It's why do people need the church? I think the church is so important because this is where we learn to practice this life together. This is where we learn to be able to be shaped and deformed and to be encouraged, to be uplifted, to be able to be restored and renewed into the image of God that he's always intended for us to be. 
This is, it's kind of like going to the gym. You don't always like to go to the gym, but you know, it, it helps, makes you stronger for that which is ahead. I think that's why the church is so important. It's like the gym. It sends us out into the world to be his presence. Why does the world need the church? Why do people need the church? I think so that we can be who God has called us to be. But the last question for us to truly be a radically hospitable church the last question, I think, is why do people need this particular congregation? Why do people, why does our community need Orange United Methodist Church in Chapel Hill? I believe that this church is essential to this community so, because we help all people find their place in God's story. I believe this church is essential to this community because people can walk into this place and know that they are going to be received, they're going to be welcomed, they're going to be loved, and they're going to be able to receive the presence of Jesus Christ. I believe that this church is essential for this community. And we're called to live into that fully. And we are to welcome and love and include and accept and have all people who seek to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ have that opportunity. That's what we're called to be. And I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that seeks to be that for all so that all people may know that they have a place in God's story. Today, may we recommit ourselves to not just being a friendly church. <laughs> we would be a radically hospitality church, one that radically welcomes and includes all. Let us pray. God, in your grace and in your mercy, you sent your son, Jesus Christ. Through his teaching, we learned about the relationship that we're called to have with you. Through his teaching, we, were, we learned about ways that we're called to repent. Through his teaching, we are called to learn to love one another. And that it is through the way that we demonstrate that love that we will be known as those who follow him. Lord, in so many ways, we give thanks for the ways that you have received us, the ways that you have welcomed us, just as we are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died and offered himself up for us. And so today, may we seek to be intentional. That we would seek to be intentional in the ways that we, we communicated your love to the world. This world that is filled with so much anger, hatred, and violence this world that is being torn apart. May we live into your love in such a way that it brings us all together. God, we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.